Thanks for joining me today on DesignWise. I'm your host, Jessica Shabbat. My guest today is John Rufo of the architectural firm Form in Place. John is very, very experienced at mixed use code and commercial architecture. And we spend a lot of time discussing the places you experience every day and what goes into constructing those places as well as the new MGM Casino in Springfield. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, hi John. Good morning. So we're gonna to start today with where did you grow up? Okay, I, um, I was born in Brighton, Massachusetts, but I grew up in Waltham and um, it was a three acre piece of land that my father had somehow finagled from the, uh, from the local uh, nursing home next door, some story about designing a septic system for them because he was a civil engineer. Mm-hmm. It was this really great old house uh, or great old garage, a three car garage where the former estate used to like park their limousines. And then my dad designed and built this house with his brother, which was really cool, beautiful old house. In fact, it's still there, although it's moved and they subdivided the land after all the kids went to college. So I'm the youngest of seven. Wow. All of us kind of more or less grew up in that house, although my the sisters on the, on the older end of the scale, were, they sort of started um, somewhere else. But anyways, that house, which was what he designed and his brother built with him, is, is it kind of looked like the Brady Bunch on steroids with the, <laughs> with the big kind of A-frame out front, but it was really, really beautiful on three acres of land. Wow. And so um, I think that... Not to skip ahead, but I think that kind of helped plant a seed that, you know, my dad designed and built this house. No other house in the town looked anything like it. Mm-hmm. It was on the cover of the phone book every now and then. Wow. Like that sort of thing, you know. Yeah. So I think it just ingrained in me this notion about, I don't know, design and being in a really unique space. Because I'd go to my friend's house, and they all lived in like split-level ranches and yeah. et cetera. But our house was really entirely unique. In fact, I think there's a picture of it over on my desk somewhere. So do you feel like you were always then meant to be an architect? Like, did you know what that actually was since your dad was a civil engineer? Um, Actually, I would say, you know, I always knew about architects and architecture, but it didn't really crystallize until um, kind of mid or early high school career when I went to visit my sister, who's an architect based in Rhode Island. She actually does some work for us from time to time. She was at RISD, mm-hmm. and this was 1980-ish, and so it was 1980-81, and so I was kind of mid-career as a high school student. I went down to visit her, and I fell in love. Like, I went to her studio, and I'm like, oh, you can go to college and not, like, just write and do math. You can go to college and be in a studio and just design, and that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to learn about design. It's like, mm-hmm. ah, okay, I get it. All right, sign me up for the going to architecture school thing because that I could relate to. And I wasn't, I wasn't a bad student in general, but I had no passion for writing or doing math. So it was just simple as that. Like you just went to visit her, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm gonna do this. It kind of was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because having just gone through the college acceptance process with my oldest daughter. Like how many different things they investigate and the resources that are at our hands and their hands. Mm -hmm. It's just exponentially more complicated, but also more informative as you go through it. Back then, I felt like, you know, I applied to RISD, BU, and UMass, and like that was it. Mm -hmm. And my plan was to go to RISD, but I got waitlisted at RISD. So I had to accept at BU, and then I got taken off the waitlist like mid-summer. Like it was that late. 
And like at the time, it didn't really, I don't know, it didn't really phase me. Uh-huh. But like if that ever happened to my daughter now, we'd, it would be like a full scale revolt. Our world would turn upside down. But back then, right. it just didn't seem like it was that crazy. So I, I wanted to apply and go to RISD. My sister also did the European Honors Program, which is a year in Italy, oh. in Rome. And like that was a big deal in all of our lives that mm-hmm. one of my siblings went to Europe and lived there for a year. And it was just this a lot of identification with it. And so I wanted to apply to the European Honors Program. That was one of my goals, which I did. And I went to lived in Rome for a year when wow. I was at RISD. So, um, but yeah, it was always like architecture, RISD. And even at RISD, I was really focused on architecture. Are any of your other siblings into design, the design field? Well, so, so Carol, yeah, so Carolyn's an architect. Um, my sister, Helen, is um, by training in nature a musician, although she's not really doing that as much anymore. Um, and I guess, I guess I'd say no. My brother is sort of in sales. Um, my older sister is a nurse. Um, second oldest is in real estate. So, my, you know, my dad was a musician and a designer and an engineer. And he designed, a, he designed a number of buildings that were super cool. Like, I don't know if you've ever been down Soldiers Field Road. Mm-hmm. As you're headed towards Harvard Stadium, there's a building on the right that's concrete. The second floor has these big round windows. Oh, yeah, yeah. So my dad designed and built that building as his office. Oh, wow. Way back when. Like, yeah. I don't know when that was. This is late 70s or something. Yeah, that remember. was when concrete forming was really popular. It was really popular. Yeah. All of brutalism stuff was going yeah. on. And the, uh, what do you call it? The, um, you know, City Hall and mm-hmm. Urban Renewal had just happened. Yeah. And he was very much a modernist in kind of like thinking about big highways that should mm-hmm. rip cities apart. Like, I wouldn't blame him for that, but, you know, he was all, he was all part of that time right. in that genre. And I remember as a kid going to that building and being in front of those giant round windows, which were, by today, would, would never meet energy code by, like, any stretch of the imagination, right? They were just these um, plexiglass windows that were bubbled. Oh. Right. So they were they were like right. a little section like of a sphere. Almost like a kid's play structure. Like right. Go, yeah. So <laughs> so he had an extra one, and what we did as kids, it was out behind our garage in this three acre land, and what we ended up doing is building a tree tree house at the other side of our property, which is kind of slowly up on a hill, by this old rock wall, and behind that was the town woods, mm-hmm. and we built this tree house with one of these giant plexiglass windows, which was eight feet in diameter. Wow. So if you looked out from our house across the yard. There was this giant bubble of an eyeball window in the woods looking back at you. And that was our treehouse. That's cool. It was really cool. Yeah. And now that I think about it, I'm glad I didn't do any preparation for this. Because now that I think about this, it's really like, you know, I think that really informed again more of kind of like cool, interesting design. Right, it's like the it was, subtle things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was somehow just part of me. And I didn't think, I didn't question it, didn't think too much about it. But... It's, it had to have an effect on me kind of wanting to be around neat spaces and make interesting spaces. So when you went to architecture school, did yeah. you like it? I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, my five years at RISD, I just loved. Um, and I think, I think I actually didn't have a preconceived notion when I was there or when I went there about what it was like and what it meant to be an architect. And RISD, you know, has a really, I would describe it loosely as a less kind of math and engineering based in more kind of uh, kind of inquiry exploration creative based so um, I didn't really know going into my first design studio like 
I thought you just kind of designed the building that you wanted. Mm -hmm. But they pushed me in so many different ways to challenge any assumption about it that I immediately got, oh, architecture is much more than being about just making a house or making a library or whatever. It really turned my whole conception of architecture on its head. And then I, I just loved it. Like the next, all those years were great. The freshman year is a foundation year mm -hmm. at RISD. So it was all drawing 2D, 3D, and then some English and some math probably. Um, but after that, you're right in your major. And then I actually ended up spending that year in Rome, my fourth year. And then I came back for my fifth year degree project and done so so how do you think how was the year in Rome like what did you learn from that I yeah. imagine a lot it was, it was <laughs> I think it's it was it was a pretty loose structure again back then like yeah. I know did you have to learn Italian to go yeah you had to take so once you get accepted to the program you spent the semester before which would be the you know the spring semester of whatever year that was 1988 I guess um, you would spend that semester studying Italian in you know, in Providence, mm -hmm. and then you would study Italian the first semester there, mandatory as part of the program. And then the second semester, you could take it or not. And I think like nobody on there's like twenty five kids on the program. I think none of us took it again. Mm -hmm. um, but you get immersed when you're there. We went. We lived in a hill town for two weeks, and it was called Homestay then. I don't know if it's called Homestay now. So you live with an Italian family in a hill oh. town, and you know. So I lived in Monte Falco, which is right across the valley from Assisi. So from that hill town, you look across the valley, and then there's a sea scene, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, I mean, just so beautiful. Right. Not quite like Tuscany. Um, this is in a, a slightly different area of Italy, close to Tuscany. You could travel there pretty easily. But it was just, you got immersed into it. And so you had to learn Italian because that's what they were speaking at dinner. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and you just kind of, you, you, you got dipped into it. Do you like still speak at all? Not much. I haven't had a reason to. Every yeah. now and then when I run into, like we <laughs> we went to Disney last, or two years ago with the girls. And I'm kind of late to drag them to Disney, but we did it. And they loved it. We loved it. And at Epcot, you know, you go through all the, through the international marketplace. Yeah, yeah. So you go through all the countries. And then, you know, at the Italian area, they've got the guys running the gelato cafe shop out front and they're right off the boat. They barely speak English, which oh, is, really? and yeah, I think they run some kind of internship yeah, program. That's fun. Gives them American experience. They yeah. get their, you know, they get their legitimate Italian people selling Italian stuff yeah. at the Italian booth kind of thing, which is, it's all great. And so I practiced a little bit on them. I find I'm much better at speaking it if I've had like a glass of wine or a cocktail. Yeah, you don't stop thinking about <laughs> it. I don't think bit. about yeah. it. It just flows, yeah. which is potentially dangerous as well, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I always found that um, when I grew up, like I had the opportunity to go overseas as mm -hmm. well. I went to Russia mm -hmm. when I was in high school. And it's such a stark contrast between the architecture yeah. um, that's a lot older than the United States has. Right. And it, for me, it was similar. Like it was so dramatic mm -hmm. compared to what I was used to yeah. that um, I think it was in many ways completely life-changing yeah. from that perspective like you you know Boston's a little different because it's an old old area so there's yeah. a lot of old architecture but um, there's nothing like being someplace that's been around for a thousand years exactly, I mean, exactly. we just don't have that here no we don't and you know Rome is amazing in that mm -hmm. way obviously there's just so I, I started really getting into layers in Rome mm -hmm. thinking about all the layers of architecture that were there over literally thousands of years and you know they have trouble building subway systems there because they always bump into some historically significant thing that's mm -hmm. buried seven layers below the city mm -hmm. um, and so I was really fascinated by that um, but I went there with a strong preconception that great design 
led to a great urban vitality. And I pretty quickly realized that, well, great design's important, but it's actually great programming makes for great vitality in urban places. So what I mean by that is I think the fact that every ground floor of almost every building in there has little retail spaces in Mm -hmm. it that enliven the piazzas and the boulevards that it's a part of, you know, it could be the junkiest looking old stucco falling apart building ever there in the middle of one of these piazzas in Rome, but it's got, it's got the best coffee that you can get anywhere in Rome on the ground floor. Mm -hmm. And that brings a life to it, or it's really great pizza, or it's, it's the jewelry shop that everyone in Rome wants to go to or whatever. So it doesn't, didn't have so much to do with the architecture and the design, although there's amazing architecture and design. Mm-hmm. I really learned that the city's vitality came from mixing uses right at the street level and being in a city that isn't zoning segregated the way American cities are and are becoming less zoning segregated now because people really realize the value of mixed use. And, so that's interesting because yeah. that's in my notes mm-hmm. to talk to you about because you guys do a lot of mixed use yeah. design. Yeah. And then specifically I saw on your website as well that you use the term placemaking a yeah. lot. Yeah, so sure could do. you talk about like what that means? Sure, yeah. So we, I mean the, the company, we named it in 2011, Foreman Place, right? Mm-hmm. Which is in, in a way kind of um, just sort of a, a simple representation of the things we do. We make stuff in this form but we're really concerned about the places that we encounter and how we um, how we make them how we design them how we experience them right so that is the genesis of the company is very much about that um i think when you take the experience of rome and other plenty of other european cities whether it's london or uh you know munich or whatever in the places that we visit in places we've been to um it's just kind of a given there that there's typically ground floor uses that are commercial Mm -hmm. and then above it you've got either office space or residential space but designing in the u.s say starting in 1990 when i got out of architecture school mixed use wasn't a thing Mm -hmm. you know and like convincing our clients that you should have retail on the ground floor of office above or residential above you know a lot of the development world didn't really understand mixed use Mm -hmm. And when it suddenly started to catch on, maybe 10 or 15 years after that, maybe 10 or 15 years from, you know, before now, it, it was kind of funny to me, an architect who studied a lot in Europe. It's like, to me, that's just, that's just what you do. That's how you make cities. Mm-hmm. But I think the development world and even the kind of urban planning world wasn't necessarily on board with that because mixing uses is really hard for people to get their head around it how they work, how the financial structures work to create them, who owns them, is it stacked condominiums, like all that thing, right? And I understand it's confusing, but now that mixed use is a real thing and everyone's embraced it, and it's actually important to development, it's like, you know, it's like the clouds part of, oh, you know, it's great, you know, it's this really wonderful thing. So what we then try to focus on as part of our, of what we do, and part of our brand is really about placemaking across a continuum of conditions so from the suburban shopping center to the kind of urban edge you know I'll say shopping center but I think what I mean is more like commercial places that combine shopping living working right all the way up to what's it like at someone's desk Mm -hmm. you know so if you can go from 
your desk to the office space outside your desk, to the lobby on the ground floor, to the sidewalk, to the street, to the park, you know, to the district, what's your experience like at every one of those levels? And we refer to that as the continuum and what's placemaking like at every one of those levels. And that's something we're really exploring through our blog and through our work, mm -hmm. definitely. Um, one thing we did recently, which is our blog just posted today, um, and it's about this experience that we had last weekend, not, not this past weekend, the weekend before, where uh, some of my paintings were shown uh, along with my wife's paintings and two other people that we know at a hotel in Provincetown that's owned by a friend of my wife's family and her husband who's a client of ours, right? Todd Fennard and Fennard Properties, they're part owner in the Harbor Hotel in Provincetown. And they've been wanting to really change up the vibe. Mm -hmm. And the hotel is this kind of 1950s motel. Yeah, I saw this blog post yeah, this morning. Right, yeah. right. So as Todd describes it, it took them a long time to peel back the 90s, mm -hmm. the 80s, the 70s, and the 60s to find the 1950s kind of mid-century modern mm -hmm. thing that was underneath and then run with that cool vibe to brand it at a time today, which is really different from back then, but it's sort of about the same thing. You know, back then in the 50s, the highway system kind of came into being and people wanted to get away, and so motels happened. Right. And now, like everyone wants to get away anyway, these buildings are there, and they're they're creating something that has this real synergy between the surf and the sand and the fire pit and the sort of the marsh grasses and then the dining space and the library space and the bar and all of those are getting blended into a changeable programmable experience that really appeals to their client really appeals to the Provincetown community because it's so heavily based in art and then um, if you run an event like what they did for us last time or last uh, two weekends ago. It's really terrific because the synergy of the uses, the place, the people, the art, you know, so um, being having a little painting business as my side hustle mm -hmm. and having my architecture business and putting those two things together in one room with one of our favorite clients and some other artists and a lot that we actually got a few of our other clients to come down to it who kind of all knew about it. And like that sort of thing is like placemaking. It's funny because we were down there and I wasn't thinking about the blog. But we're standing around kind of late in the event with Todd at the fire pit, you know, and um, we've probably all had a couple drinks at this point. And Todd was talking about, you know, how paintings on the wall that engage people in what they want to see, paintings about the ocean. So the show is called Ocean Allure. Like that, he said, you know, that's a kind of placemaking. Mm -hmm. That helps us brand the hotel and create the vibe that is completely supportive of how we always pitch the hotel to get our guests here, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's this thing on the ocean. Um, and I think at that moment when he said, you know, your paintings are part of our placemaking thing, I, it, it suddenly clicked and I started observing the space in a whole new way. And then in the car on the ride home, we were in terrible traffic, of course. Um, and uh, I said to Caroline, my wife, you know, he, so here's this thing that Todd said to me. And we got to talk about this. So we had this whole conversation about it. And then when I got back to the office the next day, I said to, to my partners, Michael and Mike, it's like, you know, I got this, got this idea about the next blog post. And mm -hmm. they're like, great, let's do that. And so it's, I, and I love our blog post because it forces us to get to our client in a different way and have them give us, like, I'm always nervous that they're not going to like it. Right. But even some of our more standoffish clients usually will really engage in it and give us a really great great quote mm -hmm. tell us what they think say thank you and just it's, it's all really good it kind of just 
kind of just works. So that was that was a nice experience with that. Yeah, so it makes me think that um, like what you're saying is like architecture is not just a building, it's an experience as yeah. well. And yeah. I'm sure it's hard sometimes to convince clients of that because yeah. people tend to think of architecture as a singular thing, like it's a building, like it has a purpose, like especially if it's a um, commercial space because right. there's money involved and, right. you know, has to make money and what's the highest and best use for the space yeah but it seems like it's changing a little bit do you think that boston is a good example of mixed use and do you think it's it seems to me like um a lot of the suburbs are exactly the opposite of what you're talking about Mm -hmm. it's like everything is zoned so specifically where you have residential and then you have a shopping center that's maybe just a big building with a big parking lot right but definitely i think things are seeming to change right i think so i think um there's a real onus or a real emphasis being placed on um, good quality places around buildings. And in Boston, they get that. Mm-hmm. So if you look at what they're doing in Seaport Square, if you look at what they're doing at the South Boston waterfront, you know, the uses there that are around the hotels, the offices, the residential towers, the ground plane, again, is this really walkable. Uh, culturally intensive, shopping intensive, food okay. intensive place, right? Excuse me. That's that's pretty easy to execute, and not easy, not literally easy to execute. But you can imagine why the city is a proponent of that, mm-hmm. and why people who come to the table have to play in that arena in that way right. is really critical. But in the suburbs, where maybe development is less inevitable, getting a developer to um, really focus on the way the building needs to be an extension inward of the public realm as well as the public realm being an extension outward of the building programming. Some people just don't think like that. Mm-hmm. And some people it represents risk or it represents um, programming that they don't have, let's say, an apparatus to run that programming mm-hmm. for. So the development clients that we work with who are really good at this kind of thing, um, they get that experience is the thing now, right? And so, like earlier we talked about how we feel lucky that finally mixed use is embraced. Mm -hmm. Well, if you drill down onto a category of retail and hospitality, so dining and retail, right, which is is such a driver of public realm, that the fact that experiential retail is the thing right now and is literally kind of everywhere and how people talk about it, as well as the reason for success behind repositioned retail developments, new retail developments, new you know retail-based mixed-use developments. It just it makes these things successful, and our clients get it, and they program the heck out of their centers all the time. Mm-hmm. Like they're always got events going on in their centers, always because the experiences of the food, the music, uh, the community engagement, the art, they realize that. The system of old anchors that used to drive foot traffic is gone. And what you've got is food and experience to get people to the place that will also then shop, right? And so supermarkets, incredibly important. An experiential retailer like um, L.L. Bean, you know, those kind of things, just super critical places where you can go and you can engage and do stuff. So I think, you know, getting back to the, the question of how do we... 
with most of our clients, we don't actually have to sell them on that. Mm-hmm. Like they know that experience is the game right, right. now. They're probably coming to you yeah. because you have experience yeah. and that's what you are really good at. Exactly. They, mm-hmm. I think they look at us as, yeah, we're guys that can execute the building. But mm-hmm. they also think of us as a firm that um, one of our clients, the, the um, Davenport companies that brought us into the MGM, the Springfield piece. We did a lot of the retail planning with MGM out there. Um, we didn't do a lot of the execution of the building. They really just had us do the planning and helped kind of flip the casino inside out to get the retail mm-hmm. to enliven the street around it and have a synergistic relationship there. So that client in particular tends to bring us in on what he calls the difficult ones, the mm-hmm. ones that aren't just, look, take this building, convert it to a new retail. Here's a tenant that's going in there. So the one of the things they had us do recently, which is really interesting, is... You know, they could just build the casino, not worry about what's around them, and assume that the entertainment and the gaming and the hotel stays and some of the retail is just going to drive enough business and they're going to be a success. But I think they're thinking about it more smartly than that. They are thinking that the Main Street District, which we kind of pitched to them as a placemaking opportunity and a branding opportunity, has to be integral to the casino. Um, in fact, we ended up going out to Las Vegas and working with them on a few other things out there at New York, New York, and at, um, I'm forgetting the name of the other one, uh, but trying to convince them to turn the retail back out to the strip so that the front door isn't such kind of like a castle front with one way into the mm-hmm. casino and that's it. And I think the mentality in gaming and the mentality in casinos has really changed. Mm-hmm. They've bought into the mixed-use thing rather than the casino being this isolated world that you can barely escape from. It's this kind of thing that gets turned inside out. I think that's great. Yeah. I think why not turn those great stores out onto the Las Vegas Strip and redesign the edge of the Strip so that it's a place to be rather than just a place to get run over if you're not careful, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's sort of that quality to it. So in Springfield, what they recently had us do is work with all the buildings across the street that they are helping to fund improvements to and study what could happen for the leasing in those buildings, helping the building owners and helping their partners kind of think about the other side of the street that they don't frankly own, but they're interested in being just as vibrant as their own. So they they really get the whole context thing. Mm-hmm. And going into a city like Springfield, which has, you know, traditionally, historically, some real issues, right? It's classic kind of Northeast city that was, you know, kind of abandoned yep. after the um it's um, like albany at, yeah right You're like what happened exactly exactly <laughs> like after the industrial revolution yeah. so many things left you know you got this city with great bones mm-hmm. to it what architects call bones yeah. you know the buildings and the streets but not so much a thriving economy or something to drive the economy so mgm springfield is going to be an amazing social urban experience mm-hmm. experiment you put it down in the middle of the city, you very purposefully turn a lot of it inside out to interact with the city, which isn't typical in casino design. You see what happens. So yeah. is there residences that are proposed with that project, or is it just basically there's, the casino and hotel there's and retail? The, so there's the casino and I think the attendant um, you know, a conference center piece to it because um, they've got the space. So And then they've got the hotel which they were going to do a really tall tower, but they ended up pushing the mass of it out to the street to rebuild the street edge, which I think is really great. And then there's a seven, uh, seven box cinema, 
-hmm. that is by Eagle Cinemas, I believe. I was just looking at the article online today. And then in the midst of it, so what precipitated this thing, it's interesting, is that the tornado in 2012 went through the city, right? Mm -hmm. And MGM was looking at a site, I think, in Palmer, different site. And they were talking to us and their local developer, who, who again brought us into it, a little bit about how to do that. That town rejected the casino, said, we don't, it's not welcome here. And then MGM went and talked to Springfield, and you had this swath of land that had gotten clipped by the tornado as it came through town, and you had a, a sort of moribund and depressed downtown area, especially heading towards the south end. Mm-hmm. And um, it just worked that there was this great synergy to come through there. So the tornado clipped the back of this historic um, building that is a, uh, what do you call it, like an arsenal building. Um, and it's got this great kind of castle front to it. And then the shed in the back, and the tornado clipped the shed, which they ultimately had to demolish. Um, so when we designed what would be on the, uh, on the back of this historic building, we kind of reinvented the shed roof, but didn't put a roof on. It just used it as a kind of uh, infrastructure to have lighting and probably like a skating rink under and events during the summer under. And then they ended up buying an abandoned church and moving the church to the other end. So you get, um, you get the historic building, you get the, um, the church, and you get this kind of implied shed in between. Mm-hmm. And those, a lot of that was our idea about how to do this. And then they run with it. And they, you see it out there. And I'm looking at the online today. And it's like, oh, they built it, you know. It's great, which is kind of how our, our work works with them. We send them an idea and right. then it gets built. It's kind of funny. And we don't end up having a ton to do with making the construction documents, for example. But having all of those things happen mm-hmm. um, and create this place is just kind of amazing. And I, and I think it's a total experiment, right? Yeah. You don't know how it's going to go. What are the social implications? What are the urban implications? What are the financial, you know, economic implications of doing this? So it'll be really interesting to see. Yeah, I can't wait to experience yeah, see it. see what actually happens. It yeah. sounds like it'll be cool. Yeah. Um, I know that there's a lot of, since we're talking about suburbs, like the town I live in, the town is um, actively currently right now rewriting a, a portion of the zoning yeah. specifically for mixed use. And I happen right. to be the chairman of that committee, ah, so oh, I okay. know how challenging cool. it is the form-based code oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, yeah very interesting yeah <laughs> uh, it's uh, definitely a different way of doing it but how do you think that i think most people don't understand that there's a big correlation between that like the towns yeah. and the state yeah. are kind of you know they have to purposely decide to rewrite yeah. their zoning code especially in the suburbs right, right. in order to entice a developer to want to develop that yeah. piece of property and yeah. everything you know out you know, in the more suburban towns is so car driven that I think it's a little hard sometimes for people to get their mind around, okay, we're going to design something, you know, like I feel like Mashpee Commons is a perfect example because that's how that was Mm -hmm. intended to be. Although I don't think they've completely executed what the original intention was, but it was meant to be kind of like this mixed use town. Do you see that kind of changing um, throughout New England in particular? Like people are going to go more towards you know, where you don't have to go into Boston necessarily to work. You can live and walk. You don't have to get in your car to go to the grocery store. You can walk yeah, there. Yeah. Or it's not, I don't feel like it's currently like that. Right. So um, there's a lot to unpack in that, right? <laughs> there's, um, there's infrastructure and transportation, 
right? Which is super challenging. I mean, every time we hear something about the MBTA, mm-hmm. trying to like just do an extension of the green line mm-hmm. or just figure out how to get it to not shut down every time there's a snowstorm, right? The challenges seem enormous. But what we, so there's a couple parts of that then. One is something we call nodal development, which um, I think Washington, D.C. was kind of way out ahead of this uh, back when with our old firm when we were designing a project right on the edge of Washington and um, uh, Washington, D.C. itself and Bethesda. And you look at, you looked at Bethesda, you look at, uh, was it uh, Silver City? Um, and these nodes of really clustered, intensely urban places, some of them designed really well, some of them eh, not so well. Mm-hmm. Reston, Virginia, really great initial design there, and they're expanding like crazy. And those cores are connected, because Washington could do it fairly easily, apparently, back then, connected to the, uh, the train lines, the, the public transportation services. So you look at us and where we are in Boston, and I think nodal development is really critical. Investing money around public transportation to get transit-oriented development to happen. That's, it's, it's critical that we spend our money there, mm-hmm. I think, to do it, right? So you look at towns like Newton, where we are, for example, right? So. Um, we were pretty heavily involved with the Newton Needham Chamber mm-hmm. Commerce, right? And in the real estate committee of that chamber, I work on the zoning subcommittee to try to track zoning issues. And we sort of just got the zoning subcommittee going, so we don't we haven't done a lot yet. However, there is this rewrite going on of the Newton zoning ordinance to a form-based code, mm-hmm. and they're going to present it to the city council, in, I think October. So interestingly enough, just this week, they engaged us to help run a, um, an ex- basically a kind of an experiment with architects and designers to come in and basically, we're not exactly sure how it's going to be formatted yet because this is literally being talked about now, but take certain sites that the city will give out to whoever shows up at this thing. We got to try to get some good turnout here um, to design a site with the new zoning that they're proposing, this new form-based code, which is mostly about trying to, well, it's about a lot of things. I think some of it's about trying to address teardowns and other things like that. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. So we're going to help the city run the charrette process of designing, you know, doing a quick, probably, hopefully we get like 10 different architects. They go away for two weeks with their assignment and with their new zoning ordinance, Mm -hmm. this test zoning ordinance. We come back and you see, well, what building did you end up with? Mm-hmm. You know, what could you do? And is this actually yielding the thing that the rewrite of the zoning to be a form-based zone is supposed to do? So a town like Newton, for example, a city like Newton, which has all these villages, already has a mentality of nodal development where right. there's stuff in cores. And like just us moving our office, I think you and I have talked about this, to Newton Highlands. Mm-hmm. Like just doing that is about us being close to the green line. And our younger architects out in the other room are like they're going in and out in the green right. line every day and they love it. It's so convenient and, and it's a reverse commute. Mm-hmm. So they live in Brookline and in Boston and in Brighton 
they jump on the green line and come out and they love the commute. It's really easy for them, right? Yeah, I used to do the same thing. Yeah. Right into Newton Center. There you go. Exactly. And it is so, so critical mm-hmm. to us. And where we were before, different village over in Newtonville had the commuter rail going inbound. Nobody could quite figure out how to get to us on public transportation. You could do a bus mm-hmm. if you caught it just right, but the commuter rail was going the wrong direction. And so we would make job offers to interns for the summer and they were like, I can't quite figure out how to get right. to you, right? So this is, it, it's just proven out to be so true. We got here, we're what, only three months into our lease and it's like people getting to us and even people sending us resumes. I think they can literally see that they can get to us. Mm-hmm. And so it's really helping us to grow the way we need to. And, you, it reminds yeah. me of, do you think that it needs to necessarily be even from Boston out to the suburbs or can people look at like certain communities and develop you know, some type of trolley or rail system just within the community. I, the reason I think about this because I was in Cincinnati last mm-hmm. summer and that's what they've done. Yeah. They basically have taken the downtown of Cincinnati, which you think of not being very interesting, right? right? Midwestern town that, yeah. you know, if you're thinking about the cities in Ohio, Cincinnati's probably third, maybe fourth on yeah. your list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they basically redeveloped the whole downtown to be exactly that Mm -hmm. you know apartments on the second floor retail Mm -hmm. and bars on the first floor and then they developed a trolley that just does the downtown so you can even if you live in a suburb you can go but you can park and then you can use the trolley system to you know essentially experience different areas of the city which i think is interesting i think we're going to have to come up with something like that because i think what's been hard for people to visualize and execute is instead of the hub and spoke model, you get the hub of the Boston and then the spokes of the various mm-hmm. um, subway rail lines that go out, right? The toughest thing to visualize is what connects the spokes out at the midpoints, mm-hmm. right? 128 is obviously all car based, right? So even in its, so, so here's another thing that we're really thinking hard about, the innovation district, which is a combined branding and focused economic development effort from Newton and Needham, which spans from sort of Wells Ave in Newton and Needham through the Founders Park, which is like where TripAdvisor is, Mm -hmm. up uh, Highland Ave to where it turns into Needham Street at the Charles River and comes into Newton Mm -hmm. to literally right at our doorstep here, right? So is that that what we're branding the Innovation District? Which I believe actually was, at one point, the (coughs) most highly traveled... Uh, street that was not a state-owned street. I believe it. Yeah, yeah, I totally believe it. So there's so much going on there. Now, what we're trying to do is say, okay, we want to get innovative companies to be there. We'd love to get some co-working opportunities to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, we think about all these things, but from a public transportation standpoint, you've got one or two bus lines that come out of Needham mm-hmm. into Newton, and every now and then I'll take the bus here. It's great that that's perfect but like getting public transportation to really hit this whole zone you're not going to get a new bus line out of the mbta really you're certainly not going to get a new green line extension i mean mm-hmm. none of us will live long enough to see that i don't think right <laughs> so what is the trolley thing and if you if you stand and you look at this corner right out here you see the TripAdvisor shuttle come mm-hmm. and pick up the folks that get off at the Highlands Green Line stop right there and go over to TripAdvisor. There's going to be something like that that has to make it all work and hold together because 
there's there's intense pressure on these communities the development the land is there to develop and redevelop the opportunities there but the transportation has to be brought up with it to knit it all together and yes we can focus on villages but newton villages aren't going to be able to take for example a ton more density mm -hmm. first of all people don't necessarily want it and there's just only so many parcels that are going to get bought and redeveloped in an economic way that you're going to get developers interested to focus work and living venues around villages that have happen to have a train line going through mm -hmm. it's just it's it's super challenging to think well, that's going to happen easily speaking of like the trip advisor building that whole area which for anybody listening that's not familiar, it's an area that I would have considered to be heavily industrial. Yeah, yeah. It used to be the Coca-Cola. Well, Coca-Cola yeah. is still there, but it, it was, was like that. It was like trucking area. Yep. So then TripAdvisor, there's like a hotel there, mm -hmm. and it's kind of off from some other maybe, I would consider like vintage, uh, you know, kind of older way of planning stores, like the Staples and that yeah. kind of stuff, where it's like parking lot up front, building kind of set off the street. Yep. And they built the TripAdvisor building, kind of redeveloped, or starting to redevelop that area. There's a new exit off of 95 mm -hmm. yeah. to go right to that area. But to me, they kind of, do you think they missed the boat a little bit by not doing more residential and more like village type planning well, on those parcels? Well, they're doing a bunch of residential now. So mm -hmm. there are more units under construction there and a bunch of them are almost finished. Um, I think you can always look back on a master plan and kind of enumerate the missed opportunities. But I guess I'm... It's some of it is like you know too much to be totally um, critical of something when you've seen the way that they work. You know, just assembling the land and making those parcels work mm -hmm. is just, it's really hard to do. So what they've done so far, I think, is great. I would love a master plan that felt like a walkable street from right. here to there, right? But the fact of the matter is you've, you've got two exits. You've got huge volumes of traffic to mm -hmm. come off the highway. They have to go somewhere. Um, I don't think it'll ever be quite perfect, but I think there's going to be some places there where people, they get to it however they get there, and they at least want to work and walk, and there's a little bit of a street grid, and there's something there that gives them a place to be during lunch or in the morning or at the end of the day when there's a company function or whatever it is. So... Um, yeah, maybe maybe there's some missed opportunities. I don't feel like I know enough about all the pieces of it. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe again, long after we're gone, the development mm -hmm. intensity will be enough that some of those one-story buildings that are like filled up with accounting firms mm -hmm. and other things like that, there's just going to be pressure to wipe those out and go up, you know, seven ten stories and continue the street grid that is being started by the development around kind of Shark Ninja and TripAdvisor and the hotel. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that might happen. I don't know that it'll happen in any of the next few development cycles or not. Right. But, you know, I think there's real, I think there's real chance. I mean, I love what's happened so far. Yeah, no, it's but, definitely an improvement, yeah. especially in Needham Street. Like, that became, you know, much more walkable. Yeah. I, mean, I used to work on that street mm -hmm. and it was like, yeah. there was nothing within walking distance. I mean, right. there was, but you wouldn't walk because the sidewalks were terrible. The yeah, street oh, sure. has a ton of traffic. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't feel quite safe, you right. know, people in order to walk have to feel like there's a distinct barrier between the cars and where they're walking. Otherwise yeah, yeah. you feel like you could, you know, it could go wrong in any moment. Yeah. Right. No, if you read, um, <laughs> but I don't it's know much better. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with Jeff Speck's book, um, walkable city. I think it's called walkable city. And he talks about the fact that, you know, having parallel parking on a street mm -hmm. is this buffer between street activities and the 
the speed of the street. Right. And, and that's important. I think that's true. I think those kind of things are really true. Like the the anatomy of what makes up a street section is something that we talk about a lot. And, you know, parked cars is actually a really good thing. Yeah. It's totally helpful. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit. I yeah. want to go back to your, um, your side hustle. Yeah. Okay. So how did you <laughs> end up developing a side hustle? Yeah. So <laughs> let's see. Um, so my wife was always really into painting, right? She was a graphic design major. And she teaches art um, at the Ursuline Academy in Dedham now. Um, but she was, during the sort of intense child-rearing years, she was doing a lot of kind of graphic design and uh, some painting work. And um, on all our trips down to the Cape, you know, we try to get away for a week in the summer and rent a little shack and sit by the water with our toddlers and try to, mm-hmm. you know, keep them from wandering off and, <laughs> and get, get a little bit of downtime. And... Um, in all that time, I started to get really interested in myself and painting, but I didn't know how, to, I literally didn't know how to use a paintbrush. It was very foreign to me. So she had recommended that I try pastels, drawing with soft and hard pastels. Mm-hmm. So I first started kind of doing pastels. I'd go down to the beach, I'd bring my boards, a bunch of paper, my pastels, and just, you know, do that. Well, and drawing's probably not as much of a stretch, because well, you have to do so much drawing Yeah, architecture. I, I could always, I mean, part of the architecture story is I could always draw really well. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just part of my, I don't know, my DNA and how I, how I kind of grew up. So, being able to draw with something that's a painting tool, like a pastel, was a great introduction to it. And then, I tend to be pretty gregarious in my approach to talking to people about their process and my process and those kind of things. But I became interested pretty quickly in, you know, well, is the work sellable? And um, we always talk about how I just tend to walk into galleries and start talking to people and eventually we end up figuring out a way to get our work in there. And so I did that with a place in Wellesley with some of my early sketches, a, a gallery called Page Waterman Gallery. And they you know, took my pastels and framed a few and they sold. And I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. And then we did like Needham Open Studios and, you know, we we, kind of ramped it up slowly. And then one of our vacations where we're kind of walking and talking along the beach, we kind of hit upon this idea of like, we know how to build a website. We know how to make this stuff. Let's build a website. Let's figure out how to market it and let's park our painting work on website and that was really before Twitter and Instagram kind of took off so we happen to know this website designer who used to be a guitarist for the band Boston Um, it's a a long story about why we know him Um, so he designed this website and we branded it Rufo Art and then eventually we actually transitioned it to you know like a Squarespace template which is Mm -hmm. easily editable by us because even back then you had to have a website designer and you had right. to give them photos and they had to put it on the website. And But now, any either of us can go in and like edit the website and keep it going. So, we just kind of grew our intent about getting our paintings out to galleries. So, we've got like four or five galleries around New England that represent our work regularly. Plus, we show and exhibits. And we have a lot of friends and people who kind of just know our work now and come to us and buy work. So, um, that is... A business unto itself it's not incorporated but you know my accountant's gotten their head around it now for many years and so we know that as a business and we turn a little tiny profit every year um, but it does a lot of great things like in just kind of getting in front of the art community and also 
intriguing some of my architectural clients with the artwork mm -hmm. is great. It's just, it's amazing how many doors it kicks open for us, whether it's on the architecture side or the art side itself. That's really interesting. But it's also this, um, you know, this activity that we really love and is very much a part of our household and our daughter's going to mass art next year. She's oh, kind nice. of got the art bug, right? Um, and as a thing, I think it's really part of the semi-retirement planning mm -hmm. thing because eventually I don't think, you know, I'm, it's tough to make a ton of money in architecture. Mm -hmm. Not that it's easy by any means to make a ton of money in art, right. you know? So I've always imagined that I got to keep working one way or another. There's not like this, you know, retirement moment on the horizon where I literally don't have to work anymore. I kind of figure I'll always have some kind of income and it would be great if, you know, I don't know when it is in my late sixties or my early seventies, if it transitions away from being architecture heavy and being more art heavy, mm -hmm. I would love that part of it because, um, I just, I just love making it and architecture as much as I enjoy it, you know, it's a lot of work. There's a lot right. of things involved with it. It's complicated. You got to get it right. Eventually that can kind of wear you down and I can just see a day coming where, okay, still need to bring in income. Can't, can't just retire totally. So I think the painting life for us, and you know maybe teaching and doing a few different things like that has always been kind of part of the plan and yeah i was gonna say do you think that there's it sounds to me um that there might be a little bit of a juxtaposition too between the fact that architecture is such a collaborative field mm -hmm. and especially if you're doing a lot of you know urban development and urban planning yeah. there, it's not just what you think it's yeah. working with other people which has its pluses and minuses right but um, with your artwork, you get to really just listen to your own voice, yeah. right? And not you don't have to necessarily consider other people's opinions. There is a lot of that, and um, that's really nice. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just a much higher percentage of this is this idea of mine across the various subjects that I work on or the various media that I use. Um, that is, you know, I can experiment. I can do these things. Uh, at some point, what's, what's interesting about like the gallery system is that they, they, ha they have to have a story to tell their clients, the people who buy your art, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it's amazing how much that necessitates or that the default setting for that is narrowing down your work into, okay, this guy does this thing. It's impressionism or it's abstract or it's landscapes or, you know, and it's not, it's not across the whole spectrum of it. And I wouldn't describe every gallery that we work with as being like that, but they need a story to tell when a customer comes in about the artist because art buyers are savvy nowadays. Mm -hmm. They want to know the artist. They want to know they're really into their craft. They want to know what they're thinking, you know? So there is also a storytelling piece of it that makes you the artist think about well what is your story and should you be gearing it if you want to sell the work to something so it does at some point potentially if you're really interested in selling your work have also some of that like yeah it's all this creative stuff that's flowing out of you but this doesn't sell in my gallery so what else you got for me right right so there's yeah. that and I don't mind it. I feel like the relationships we have with guests, some, something about the fact that as an architect, you work on architectural commissions, right? And you're designing toward what the client needs you to do and what the building needs to be. 
I've been doing that for so long now mm-hmm. that doing that in my artwork actually isn't all that stressful for me. I think my wife stresses out a little bit more about the commission side of the artwork, and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll take on commissions. But I, I don't stress about it. I just tell them, if you don't like it, I'm going to sell the painting to someone else, and you got to be okay with that before we start this commission, right? Right. So um, that kind of mentality that I that I definitely got out of working for clients my whole architectural career blends pretty well with not being stressed out about what the galleries want. Mm-hmm. And my wife's a little bit less sort of okay with that paradigm, although she's getting just better and better at dealing with galleries. Well, in some ways that's probably due as well to the difference between men and women to some degree, because for you it's still, even though it's a side hustle, my guess is it's business, right? And yep. women tend to be a lot more emotional about what they produce yeah. so it's like if you're feeling more emotional about what you're producing and you yeah. have more of a you know visceral reaction to it if someone doesn't like it or there's some criticism related right. to that right. you take it much more personally right. where you know maybe for you it just doesn't feel like that yeah that could be I, I, I'd have to be really careful about what I say <laughs> <laughs> because my, my wife and probably a lot of female artists that I know will be listening to this but there's nothing wrong um, with it I'm yeah. saying it's not a downside it's just a yeah, like a different mindset. I think I think there's there's some truth in that. I I think I do feel like um. You know, divorcing the emotion from the sale of the piece. Mm-hmm. I've gotten better and better at that. So naming your price and if people try to talk you down, holding your ground or rationalizing why you might shift. Mm-hmm. You know that kind of stuff. That's just business. Mm-hmm. But it's tied up in the emotion of having done these pieces. Mm-hmm. And I, friends of mine have said, you know, are there pieces that you like so much that you won't sell? You know that are personal enough that you won't sell, and there might be a couple like that. But I've, I don't know. I, I tell them, you know, I don't make paintings to stack them up in my basement. Right. I make paintings to get them out to people because people like them, and I want them. To, I mean, the other part of it is just whether you're selling a piece of art as kind of a commodity. At the end of the day, there's a transaction. Leave that aside. The great thing about it is people getting your art on their wall or responding. Like I've had a couple of people approach me just through Instagram, a guy in Italy. Mm-hmm. He just happened to love the painting, wanted it, bought it, shipped it to him, like, you know, PayPal, all Great. easy. And people really respond to it emotionally. And I would say it's pretty rare that I have someone have an emotional, visceral reaction to something I've designed in the architectural room, mm-hmm. you know, or it happens, but it's so not watered down, but it's affected by the very long process of getting yeah. that thing executed that it's hard for people to even see the thing as this, I don't know, beautiful place or whatever. Mm-hmm. Where and, and it takes time, and then you come back to that space, and you're like, oh, this is really great. I'm glad I designed this space. This actually really worked. And that happens all the time. Art is tends to be really immediate. Mm-hmm. Somebody reacts to the painting, and they're like, so how much is that? Because I think I need to buy it. And again, take the transaction out of it. Somebody's saying that what you conceived of and put on canvas is important for them enough emotionally to put it on their wall so they look at it every morning when they get up. There's something pretty powerful about that. Yeah. There's something pretty satisfying about that. Yeah. Well, I think both art and architecture have a certain legacy you know, involved in them in you know, different ways, mm-hmm. but you're essentially producing something or designing something with the hopes that you know, when you are not around anymore, that that piece of you still exists. And I think that people don't necessarily either acknowledge that or think about it maybe as much. Yeah. Um, But it's 
one of the best parts I think about this kind of a career yeah and it's interesting to see how it ages mm. <laughs> you know because that's really that's a big part of it like I'll go to buildings that I designed well especially like if your dad designed you're talking yeah. about the building your dad designed yeah. you know going to see you have a almost a second generation view yeah. of what that's like imagine right. what your you know your children will feel like yeah. oh my dad and my mom you know painted that or they created that you know there's right. some generational you know satisfaction that comes from that. I think so yeah I mm -hmm. think so I think that's a that's a really cool thing about it is that it outlives you presumably um, I think my buildings and my paintings will all mostly outlive me some mm -hmm. of them might some buildings might get torn down some paintings might uh, disappear in a, in a in a fire or something, I mean, who the heck knows? But yeah, the fact that it's out there and it's this mark, that's, that's a really cool thing and that my kids can kind of relate to it. Um, you know, they've seen it. We've been painting, you know, we have a tiny studio, it's smaller than this conference room mm -hmm. and it's in the house. It's the bedroom that didn't get used on the ground floor of the house and we made it into a studio and so my kids come down and there we are Sunday mornings painting, right. you know, and they're just, it's so ingrained in them that eventually, you know, they'll, they'll have pieces on their wall and they'll be around it. And, they can take it with them when we're gone that'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> well certainly it was enough of an impression for one of your children to decide she wanted to do art right? yeah yeah and they're both really actually super creative kids um and they're so much smarter than me uh, it's just staggering to me how smart they are and they're they're both really like much better at math than i will ever be <clears throat> i couldn't even help them after like second grade really <laughs> and they're both super savvy about relationships and stuff and it just it kind of blows me away I don't I, I don't know if I just slept through the first 18 years of my life or what happened but I look at them and I think I did not have it together compared to those two well you might have had it more together than you think in hindsight maybe yeah yeah I, I, I guess I'm doing okay <laughs> well thanks for talking to me today John you're welcome thank you this is really terrific awesome really great thank you for listening make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast this podcast was sponsored by Hawthorne Builders. Make sure to follow us on all social media platforms. Until next time.